you guys don't know this, but you've been, this is crazy. <laughs> uh, uh, Connor mentioned I talked to him about a year and a half ago. It was about a year and a half ago that I, I had a real change in my, my heart, to, to like a calling from God. And so you guys don't know this, but your church has been, I've been thinking about you for a long time. Um, thank you, Holy Spirit. Yeah, so my name is Stephen Backhouse. I grew up in Alberta. I'm a small town, Three Hills, Alberta. And then, oh, wow, I've got some Bible college people here probably. Um, my dad was a Bible college teacher. Um, I went to high school in Calgary. I've got some Calgary people here. Um, and then when I was 19, I was like, bored of Canada. I was like, what do 19-year-olds know, right? You 19-year-olds here in the room, you, you might think that you're adults, but... But, and I thought I was an adult, and I was like, ah, oh, I know everything, right? And I was like, ah, oh, enough of Canada, boring place. And I wiped the dust in my feet, and I left. And I went to England, where my father is from. And I, and I lived in England. I, I, 19 years old, I, I left my home country and my home people, and I, I went to another country. And uh, I've been in England now for 21 years, which is why I have this weird accent. And, and I met my wife there, and I have a church and a career, and I mean, I love, I love England, so I'm a, now a person of two cultures. Uh, but in the last couple of years, my heart was starting to, basically the Lord was saying, you know, you didn't leave Canada very well. You had a hard heart, and, and my heart was starting to soften, you know. And so Canada started to come back on my radar, and here we are in California, to, to my wife Claire, who you'll hear from in a second, was at a student at Bethel, and I was just there being, living, and supporting us. And, uh, uh, and the Lord started putting Canadians in my path in California. And, uh, and I started to think, oh, these are my people. I haven't been around my people for 21 years, and this guy's one of them. So anyway, it's brilliant. So I, I, part of my thought was, Working, I've been a theologian, I've been an academic theologian for 20 years. So I went to university, either as a student or as a teacher. And for the last 10 years, I've been teaching at a, at a seminary in England. And we trained uh, people who are trained to become pastors and priests in the, the Anglican church in England. Some of you might have heard of the, uh, the Alpha Course. Yeah, nod, yeah. So the Alpha Course was started by a, an Anglican church called Holy Trinity Brompton, which was the church that started my college. So... We're part of this, they're called the Alpha College and this kind of stuff. And it was, you know, it was a good job. I was doing it and I loved it, but I was growing increasingly unhappy with the idea that theology was being wasted in the university. We, the church, we send people to a place called a seminary or a university in order to learn about their own Christianity. And the local church doesn't have a space for it. And, and I would see theologians come back to their local church and feel alienated from their local church. And I would feel, and I would see Christians growing up in, in a church excited about Jesus, and then they'd go to some place called the university, and they'd grow cold or distant or lose their faith, right? That's a story that we see all the time. And that the local church and the academic theology have not been good friends. And, uh, and I thought, this isn't, this isn't what I want to do. <laughs> like, I love Jesus because of theology, not, not in spite of it. So... Part of this awakening in the last two years was me thinking, I think I need to change my job, and I think I need to come to Canada. So this is why I've been thinking about awakening church for a long time. 
because I was like, what if I taught theology in a church like with Connor? You guys are at the beginning, and, and that was the beginning of a seed which grew, and, and, and in the last two years, I have quit my job. Um, I now, I've quit my full-time job, and I am now a freelance traveling theologian, and this is what I do, and I, and I do this thing called tent theology, which is what you are doing right now with me. You don't even know it, <laughs> um, where, where I set up, the idea is that it's called a tent. It's like, it's easy to set up, it's easy to take down, it's easy to take anywhere. Don't expect churches to build an institution which they have to then keep going forever. It's like, no, no, we'll, we'll come to you, we'll live with you for a time, a day, a weekend, a week, and we'll do stuff for everyone, you know? And, and, then, and then we might go away, but hopefully we'll stay in touch, and then maybe I'll come back again next year, and then we'll continue our relationship, right? This is the plan. So, just so you know, we already love you. Also, you guys, I can tell from, you know, I can just tell, you, you, you're a church that's okay with, with people who have words, right? Okay, Claire, come on up. <laughs> Claire, my wife, Claire, um, had a word for you. Okay, hello, everybody. So, yes, my accent's even <laughs> stronger than Stephen's. It's really fun to be here. Thank you for having us. Um, yeah. It's so fun to get to know you guys. Thank you. Um, so people have probably had words like this for woman before, but this morning I felt to just look up a little bit of the history of woman. And when I discovered that it used to be called um, diamond because of the train tracks crossing, something just stood out to me about that, and I didn't know what it was. And... Um, and I felt as though the Lord was encouraging you that this city has seen so much change. Like it started as a hamlet and then went to a village and then went to a hamlet again and then went to a village and then a town and then a city. And then the changes with the railroads and even being named after a journalist that wrote about the railroads and traveled around. There seems to be so much change and the ways in which population fluctuates. But I felt as though the Lord was saying that actually diamond is a really good way to describe what he's doing here. That regardless of change, there's something incredibly strong being built up here and that can't be changed. So once a diamond's formed, it's like the hardest substance. You can cut anything with a diamond. Um, and I felt as though he was encouraging you that despite the, the different changes, he's been using the pressures to build up diamonds. And once those diamonds are made, they can't be removed. So um, I just see excellence in your church. It's just written all over your church, like excellence and the strength that comes from faithfulness. And it's amazing to see. So, yeah. Wow. wow. Okay. Great. So Claire and I are here later this afternoon as well, and you'll hear more about our story, perhaps. We're doing another Q&A session in the afternoon, yeah. Um, I don't want to abuse and take up your time. How, you tell me, how long do you want me to go for? What if I set the timer so that I have an idea how long I'm, we're going? And then uh, see what happens. Listen, I gave you guys um, some homework. And the homework was to read the Gospel of Mark. And I, I asked 
I won't ask for a show of hands because we don't always, I don't, this is not a shame-based culture here. We're not going to shame you if you didn't do your homework. But for those of you that did, the, the assignment was read the Gospel of Mark and identify all the stories or passages that if somebody asked you to lead a Bible study, you would be least confident. <laughs> so you know how sometimes we read the Bible or we have it read out in church and then there'll be some really complicated, tough passage, right? And then there'll be just maybe an easy verse. <laughs> and then the preacher will stand up, and the preacher will talk about the easy verse, and they'll just totally ignore the tough one. But everybody in the room is just thinking, but, but what about women should not speak in church? Or what about babies being dashed against the rocks? Like, I don't understand. And so I've started to just develop the idea that it's to lean into the tough passages, because that's all anybody's thinking about anyway. And the other fun thing is, listen, guys, we wrote, when I say we, Christians, we wrote the New Testament. We wrote it. We built our churches around it. We can deal with it. Yeah. You know, and, 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 if, and if there's a complicated and difficult passage, then the best place to discuss it is in a fellowship, worshiping community of people who love each other and love Jesus. It's not some university, right? The best place to deal with difficult questions is here. So we're not scared of it. We wrote this book, we're shaped by this book, and the Lord uses these books to change us. And so we get to talk about them, right? And so this is what I want to do. Um, I want you to just call out any of the tough passages that you encountered in the Gospel of Mark, and then that's what we'll talk about for the next 40 minutes or so, okay? And I, I have one in the back chamber that I, as we were worshiping, I feel the Lord wants us to talk about. So I'll see if any of you bring it up. That should be great. And if, even if you don't, we'll talk about it anyway. But other than that, I haven't planned ahead of time. Claire's going to bring me this. So if you could call out, I'll write them up on my board, and then we'll see what we do. And the best thing to do is to, to, to if you have the chapter and the verse where it comes from so we can all follow along. The other thing I would say is, is if you call out a question, almost 100% certainly there is other people who have that same question. So you calling out a question is not you exposing yourself to the crowd, it's you speaking for the crowd, just so you know. Yeah. Okay, the one I have is... Um, Marla, right? Marlene. Marlene, okay. <laughs> uh, when I was reading Mark, there's two places where Jesus, when he heals... Yeah. He doesn't use the English word like he does everywhere else, like get up and take your mat or okay. walk. He uses another language. Why? Oh, and okay. Just the do book you have of Mark. The, Do you know the two passages you're talking about? Uh, one is in five forty-one. Five forty-one. Yep. Yeah. Is that the the Talitha Kum? Is that the young girl? Yep. And the other one is seven. Verse 34. 34. And what's that one? Um, You'd be a surprise to hear I haven't memorized the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> F. Fatha. Yeah. Which means be opened. Oh, uh, with the eyes. Is that, yeah. is that where he's, is that the mud on the eyes? Yeah. Uh, the ears. Finger, finger in his ears and in then the ears and spitting the into the dirt. Speech impediment. Spitting, yeah. Okay, and that's where he spit. Yeah? Spit on his fingers and yeah. then. Stuck them in the ears? Yeah. Spit ears. 
So Super. I'm just wondering why he used a different language yeah. there. Why, when, why, why another any language? Any of the books he doesn't. That's great. We will talk oh, about that. Yeah. Any other questions? <laughs> That's you. so great. Thank you, Marlon. Chris? Hey. One second. Calgary Chris. I can project. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, great. Um, Mark 10.25, Jesus is, is uh, quoting, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Yeah. And uh, he, he talks, Jesus talks other places about wealth and riches there. And I just wanted to see, based on the chapter and the context, what role do you see riches having in the life of the believer? Okay. Yeah. Uh, riches. Okay. I'm going to just put it. Uh, this, this writing is messy. It's for my sake. It's not for you guys to read it so I can remember. Good. Uh, I think I had a few. Um, Mark nine, twelve, the or eleven to thirteen. Uh, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does not first does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is, it is written of him. Okay. And then also, um, I think I've heard this taught on, a f but I'd love to hear your thoughts on Mark 9, 29, which is, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And then also, curious about um, Mark 14, 51, a young man flees. Who's this kid? I don't even know. I don't know. It's weird. I was like reading. I was like, wait, I've never noticed this. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Naked man, yeah. Naked <laughs> Who is he? Who is he, right? <laughs> okay, good. Very good. Uh, Mark three twenty nine. Eternal sin. Eternal sin. What, the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit? Nobody else has a problem with that, do they? I, I think you must be all by yourself. We all, we all know exactly what's going on there. Perfect. That's a really good one, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, in chapter 8, where he, the, he cast out the demon legion, yeah. and they asked to be they ask to go into the pigs. Yep. Why do they do that? <laughs> ask to go into pigs. Now, listen, friends, I think this will be enough to go on. Oh, I had two more. Um, unless, you, unless somebody just has an abs... Do you have a burn, another one, a burning one? Uh, well, I can wait till tonight. No, no, I, I, mean, I totally love doing this. I can do this. I literally am not exaggerating. I, I've talked about Mark for a week straight, so... Yeah. Um, okay, the other one that I will ask about, just I'm flipping through browsers in my... Um, 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 20, And unless the Lord has shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake whom he chose, he shortened the days. How do you know if you're chosen, even though it says, but I just... Elect. There's like, yeah. And chosen, yeah, okay. Super. And the one that the Lord asked me to talk about is the
the mountain, say to this mountain, it will be thrown into the sea? Does anybody have that? As, okay, very good. And we even sang about it, didn't we? He who moves mountains. Right. All right, friends, listen, I love doing this, and I want to do this, and I also am aware that you have children and families and turkeys in the oven and all sorts of stuff. So let's, be, let's see how we can do this. Okay, we're going to start with a verse that none of you mentioned. Hopefully nobody will notice that. And that verse is Mark 1. Mark 1, 1. Mark 1, 1. Have a look in your Bibles. The Gospels are really briefly. So the Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. We have four Gospels. The Gospels are not the they're not the oldest books in the New Testament. Do you know that? The earliest Christian writing we have actually come from the Apostle Paul. So Apostle Paul is writing letters around the 30s, 40s, 50s to churches that are already in existence. The Gospels are come to us from the eyewitness accounts of the disciples. Essentially, as the disciples are old men and they're dying, their disciples are saying, oh boy, we better write this stuff down. And the Gospels come to us, they're written in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and the Gospel of John might have even been written in the 90s, okay? So the church has already been in existence for two generations by the time the Gospels are written down. They're written for people who here is a second-generation Christian or more. Who here parents were Christians, right? So we know... Those of us who, who, who were born into Christian families, there's a whole lot of baggage that comes, there's a whole lot of blessing that comes from being a second generation Christian, but there's a whole lot of baggage, right? Familiarity breeds contempt. Um, going to church just becomes a habit that you do because that's just what people like us do. It was happening then. The Gospels are off, a, a lot, one of the impetus of the Gospels being written down is the Gospel, right? The disciples and the people who are writing the Gospels are saying, we need to go back to our first love. We need to remind the people why it is we're even here in the first place. Who, what it felt like to be around Jesus. We need to remind people what did it feel like to be him. And if you read the Gospel of John, he, in, in the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John says, I, we felt him, we touched him. This is what it felt like to be around him, right? So the Gospel of Mark, we're not sure. Nowhere does it say, I, Mark, write these words. But tradition has linked Mark to the writing down here. And one of the reasons that Mark is connected to this, and by the way, some people think he might have been this guy, that he put himself in. I'll tell you the honest answer, nobody knows, okay? We don't know. But one of the things is maybe he's inserted himself into the, the, into the text in a kind of a hidden way. But, um, and also in a way that doesn't show himself to be great. One of the themes in the Gospels is the disciples are never good examples of how to be a disciple. <laughs> Almost never. And a fun thing about Mark is that it, it, we think it might have easily come to us through Peter's first-hand accounts. And Mark and Peter traveled around together. So, and there's a lot of little details in the Gospel of Mark which, which are quite Peter-centric. The other fun thing about that is that Peter comes off really badly in the Gospel of Mark. And if it really did come from his eyewitness account... That means Peter is allowing his celebrity bubble to be punctured. He's the great pillar of the church. He's the celebrity Christian of the day. When he walks into a room, everybody wants to be around him. And Peter's going, oh, no. Let me tell you what, it, what I was really like. 
and then he gives us his story. So there's some really fun things in Mark, but we think that Mark, for various reasons, which I don't need to go into, we think Mark is probably the first gospel written. We don't know for sure, but we think Mark is the oldest of the gospels. So Mark has invented a genre called the gospel. We didn't, it didn't exist before Mark wrote them down. Before Mark wrote this, there wasn't the thing called a gospel, but now we have four of them. Mark invented it. Let's listen to the first words of the first gospel ever. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's Son, or in the beginning. What, if you hear in the beginning, and you're a good first century Jewish Christian, what do you hear? Genesis, right? In the beginning. All of the Gospels, in fact, all of the New Testament, they really want you to know that Jesus was part of creation. In the Genesis 1, in the beginning, the earth is formless and void, and the Holy Spirit hovers over the chaos and brings order out of chaos. The Hebrew word is tohu wabohu. I've just told you all the Hebrew I know, and I love it. But tohu wabohu, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the chaos, tohu wabohu. And he brings order. Creation is order out of chaos. And all the other Gospels, if you read like John, he makes it really explicit. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And nothing has been made that hasn't been made through God, right? Jesus is there at the beginning. But even Mark has a, gospel, has a Genesis story, and that's in the beginning. He wants, you to know, he wants you to feel what it feels like to read Genesis 1. And in the theme, one of the themes of all of Mark is that Jesus is not just a good teacher, he's the creator. He's not just telling us how it could be, he's telling us how the world actually is. Okay? This is all, everything I'm going to answer here is connected to this theme in Mark 1.1. Jesus is the creator who's telling us how the world is and how it's, and how it's meant to be. He's not just a good teacher saying, hey guys, here's a theory I've thought up, stroking my beard. He's not saying that. He's saying, here's, here's a theory I had. Let's see if we can put it into practice. He's saying, I was there at the beginning of creation. This is how humans are supposed to work. Follow me. It's a, it, the gospel of Mark is, is, there's a story throughout it of Jesus is recreating the world or putting it back to rights as he does his thing. The other thing in the gospel of Mark is, in the beginning, the good news right? That's the word gospel, good news. Now, we think of gospel as, or we think of good news as, um, well, listen, in our church culture, right, the gospel is Jesus died and rose again for our sins. Yes, that is the gospel. I, I agree. And that is not what people would have heard when they first heard the word gospel. The word gospel, euangelion, is a Roman military word. It's a word that you would use. It's like your side is winning. Good news, your side is winning. If you were in a siege, so let's, you know, your city is under siege, and then Caesar comes, and he breaks the siege, and then he sends his heralds into the city, and they say, gospel, gospel, euangelion, euangelion, good news, your rightful king has come and broken the siege. Right? So when the first people who knew Jesus said, what word best describes what it felt like to be around Jesus? Good news, good news. 
your rightful king has come to break the siege. And more than that, he created the world. So, I love Jesus. I love him. So, any tough question, any tough question, it might take a few steps to get there, but when you're reading the Bible, especially the gospel, but any gospel, any tough question you have is somehow unlocked by realizing new creation and breaking the siege. Breaking the, Jesus is the one who breaks the siege or who's recreating the world. So, let's go into it. Um, let's start with three because that's the earliest one and it's the most complicated one. So, have a look at Mark 3. By the way, friends, if I run out of time and I didn't answer your question, just come talk to me afterwards. Like, you're not going to leave today not having your answer questioned, uh, question answered. I just might not be able to do it in this time. Um, have a look at Mark 3. In fact, I don't like my translation. What's your translation, Bob? Can I? Right. Uh, let's have a look at Mark 3. And it is... Yeah, I'm just wondering where to start. So, uh, let's start at Mark 3.24 or 23. And he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. So the story is, is that Jesus has been... Let me start with the headline. Let me start with the headline. If anybody here thinks that they've committed the eternal sin, I have good news, good news. Okay? If you're worried that you've committed the eternal sin, you have not committed the eternal sin. Okay? I've been a youth leader, and I'm sure there's youth leaders here who have had... I've had young people come up to me. I'm Stephen. I'm so worried. I think I've committed the eternal sin. The eternal sin against the Holy Spirit is not, forgive me, but it's not something that if you're young and dumb, it's the old and wise people who are going to possibly commit this. Right? It's Kendall. <laughs> it's, the pe it's me. It's the people who presumed, it's Barb. It's the people who presumed to be the teachers. We're the ones. So I'm not trying to say there's no such thing. Don't worry about it. What I'm saying is this is a teaching aimed at people who claim to know better. And the context is that Jesus has been healing people. He's been rescuing people from bondage. He's been uh, lame or walking, blind or seeing, deaf or speaking. The, you know, um, he's teaching with authority. He's doing all the things that a normal guy shouldn't do. He's acting like the king who created the world and putting it back to rights. And the teachers of the law... And his own family, actually, are saying, you're out of your mind. In fact, and the teachers of the law, the, the preservers, the ones who are responsible for knowing their scriptures and their history and their inherited tradition, they're looking at this. 
at Jesus, the Jesus movement, and they're saying, you have a demon. That's the devil. They're seeing the Holy Spirit hover over chaos. They're seeing people being released from their bondage. They're seeing disease and death being cured. They're seeing um, political bonds, people who have been bound in one sort of culture are coming loose from that culture and are reforming themselves around the Jesus movement. And the Pharisees are are the the teachers of the law, and, and they're looking at that, and they're going, oh, that? That's the devil. And Jesus is saying, watch out, you teachers of the law. Watch out, you people that know better. If you can look the Holy Spirit full in the face and say, you are the devil, you are committing an eternal sin. Now, the word eternal gets us in a muddle. Um, and I, I, my translation says unforgivable. I don't like that because it's not really the, that's not the best, the best way to talk about it. We're talking here, we want to talk about the eternal sin or you are in a state of perpetual unforgiveness is maybe a good way to write, to say it. We have, us moderns, we think of eternity. What time is it? We're going to have, a, it is 11.59 and you're going to have a philosophy lecture right now in church. <laughs> We humans think of the future of time as eternity as like the future. It, oh, we live forever and ever. One second piled upon another. And we think of like the future, we're in the present now and the past is behind us. We think we're on a timeline or something like that. And that the future is just a past, a present that hasn't happened yet, right? But the ancients didn't think of eternity that way. Eternity was more like an age that you can live in. Eternal life didn't mean living on a cloud forever and ever. It meant living under the reign of God. God is eternal. Humans are temporary. Right? And you can live in God's realm or you can live in man's realm. It isn't that you live in God's realm only after you die. It's that are you living under the reign of the eternal God? Are you saying yes to God? That's eternal life. Are you living... It's almost a sideways movement. Are you living under the habits and rules and common sense of humans, which is temporary and will fade and pass away? Well, now you're living, the New Testament says, in death, in darkness. Life and death. Eternal, temporary. Okay? If you can then look at the... Now, think about... Who wants to be my Holy Spirit? I don't know. Chris. I know Chris's name. He's from Calgary. Chris, you're the Holy Spirit. And you have done all these amazing things, and you are bringing people into life, and I look at you and I go, yeah? You're the devil. And I turn, right? I have broken my relationship with the Holy Spirit. I am living, as long as my back is turned, in a state of unforgiveness. But only if I would turn, he would heal me. Forgiveness in the New Testament is, it's not that the Holy Spirit says, oh, you made that mistake when you were young and dumb. You're never going to be forgiven. It's you are persisting in a state of unforgiveness. If only you would turn, I would heal you, right? Oh, bless you. Bless that little one. (laughs) Right? So the unforgiveness is is a present existence that you can live in. And the Pharisees are persisting in a state of broken relationship with the one 
that they should be having their eyes on. Right? So, that's something I want you to know. <laughs> okay? Um, why does Jesus speak in another language? Well, he didn't... The New Testament didn't fall out of the sky fully formed. So many Christians think that. And then I see this all the time, by the way. I see Christians coming to university and losing their faith about when they learn just the bare facts about the Bible and they lose their faith because they're like, I wasn't taught that. I can't trust the Bible anymore. Mark, the guy named Mark maybe didn't write the Gospel of Mark. But nowhere does it say, I, Mark, wrote these words, right? We're not being asked. Jesus didn't speak in Greek. He spoke in Aramaic. Jesus didn't, you, you said, oh, why didn't he, why did he use a different language to heal in those two times? He used a different language to heal all the time. Um, our New Testament is itself a translation of Jesus. So when the time the New Testament was written down, it was written down for Greek-speaking people living in cities, describing an event of Aramaic people speaking in living in the rural environment. So it's already a translation. 40, 50 years later. It, already the disciples are having to translate Jesus to a new tech context. Which is why, this is what we do now. This is the, it's a primary Christian thing. Christians are always translating Jesus into their current context. It's fine. There's nothing to be scared of. It's there. It's in our ground zero text. You cannot find a New Testament document that is not a translation of Jesus into a present context. So Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and we've preserved some of those words like Epphatha and Talitha, whom little girl wake up. So that's, I mean, that's the basic answer is, I think, I don't know why the, they decided that for those words we would keep Jesus' original words. I don't know why. Um, one of the things is that it, some of those details actually are, are evidence of the eyewitness testimony to it. So every once in a while you'll have like a detail that's, is kind of more concrete than it needs to be. So you have Jesus sleeping on a soft pillow in Mark, on a cushion, a soft cushion. Or you have the crowds are swarming over the green grass, it's described when they come um, to, to, to be fed. And there's little funny details, which a lot of scholars are like, well, those are the kind of details that you would add if you were actually there. <laughs> it, they're, they're just little details that don't actually add anything to the story with their eyewitness details. And they're just kind of dropped in. And, and some of the times these language ones are like, well, I was there and he's, this is how it sounded when he said it. And um, often some of the things that we, we preserve about the Jesus story that we don't understand, nobody has ever understood it. Even the people writing it down didn't understand it. Jesus is very mysterious. He breaks, part of his act of recreation is he breaks us out of our, he's breaking people out of the, tr the traditions that have been binding them. And one of the ways he did that was he would say things that were really strange just to shake people up, which is why we have, you know, when the, he taught, he taught as one who had authority, and the people were amazed, it says in Mark. And the word amazed is the word you would use for if there was an earthquake and you had to grab a hold of the nearest solid pillar to keep you up. The idea is when people heard Jesus speak, their whole world was rocked. Their world was turned upside down. So there's a lot of mysterious things that Jesus says that the gospel writers just preserved. They didn't even understand it. They're like, well, he said it. I'm writing it down. Uh, one of them is the Son of Man when he refers to himself as the Son of Man, for example. 
it, it comes from the book of Daniel, but it's a phrase that he seems to have just attached to himself in a way that nobody really ever did before. So he says things and does things which shake, shake us up. And it, it's, not that, it's not that, oh, Jesus said these things, he spit in somebody's ears, and they knew what it meant, and we've now lost that knowledge. They didn't know what it meant even when he did it. Uh, the spitting in the ears, though, is interesting because uh, when Jesus blows on people or when he spits in the mud, when he does those things, those are acts of creation. The Holy Spirit breathes his spirit. You know, God forms man out of clay and then breathes his spirit into man. Jesus is then shown to be playing with mud and breathing into it. And, you know, there's a lot of that. So some people think that why is he spitting in that guy's ears and then saying be opened? Well, it's an act of creation. He's putting creation back to rights. All right, friends, I've been talking for half an hour. Um, why did he ask Legion to go into the pigs? Um, why, why did Legion ask to go into the pigs? One, short answer, I don't know. <laughs> Longer answer, um, you know the story, right? So there's a man and he's been in, infested by uh, demons Jesus says, what is your name? By the way, he gets the name from the demon, which means he now has power over the name. Interesting, demons are always trying to say to Jesus in Mark, oh, we know who you are. You are Christ, the Son of God. They give him a name. Because in the ancient tradition, if you can name somebody, you have power over them. So we're always, at, they're always like, well, why did Jesus tell them to shut up? Because he really was the Son of God. They're like, yeah, I am the Son of God, but I'm not going to let you demon say that name. You, you naming me, I'm not going to give you power over me. Just because your name is your... Um, you know, in the ancient world, your name is your destiny, right? You know, you're not just named Connor because that's a nice-sounding name. You're named thankfulness because we're thankful for him. Or you're named bitterness because I'm never going to forget the harm that was done to me. And Connor, it's, it's on you now, right? So, so the name is really important because it tells you who you are in your destiny. It doesn't just tell you. It's not just a random collection of names. So when Jesus names, when he gets the name out of them and says, oh, my name is Legion, He's exerting a power over them. Um, oh, and by the way, again, when you are a first-century Roman-occupied Palestinian and you hear the word legion, you hear Roman military. Okay, this is yet another. This is an example of Jesus showing his. And the region where this happened was a was a Gentile region, well known for where there was a Roman garrison. So this is a story of Jesus moving before he shows up in Mark eight. Five. Um, in Mark 5, he's with Legion. Before he shows up, he's been going into Jewish areas, and then he goes over the, crosses the river, or crosses the lake, and goes to a Gentile Roman area. And then they start using the words Legion and things. So, as a, as a reader, as a first, um, the first reader of this text, you know, we don't really know the difference between, it, to us, it's just all foreign land, Bible land. But to the first readers of it, they're like, oh, right, okay, we were in Jewish territory, now we're in Gentile territory, because they know the names of the towns, right? Like, you know, we know the difference. I don't know, you, you, know, the, you know the posh area of Saskatoon, and you know the, the, the area that's on the wrong side of the tracks. But somebody who doesn't live in Saskatoon doesn't know that, right? So there's some of that similarity going on in the Gospels. And Jesus goes to a Roman area that's well known for where Roman soldiers are dominating the locals, and he goes and he finds a man, and the man says, my demon's name is Roman Garrison, okay? 
So you know you're in that kind of imagination space of Jesus is about to show his authority over the Romans now, not just the Jewish temple people. And he does that, and one of the things he does is the de- he casts the demons out, and they say, well, we, we need to attach to something. Send us into the pigs instead. I mean, there's a clue, because if it was a Jewish village, they wouldn't have pigs. Um, and I've read some people talking about powers and principalities and, and faceless powers, of which demons are one type of faceless power. They're not the only ones, but he's, it's one type of faceless power gets described in the New Testament. And there seems to be something about these powers that they need to attach themselves all the time into bodies. They can't, they're not really free-floating. Like, we have this idea, this... this um, oh, it's related to what I'm going to talk about here, actually. We have this idea that, like, the spirit world and the physical world are two very separate things. And this is this kind of Gnostic idea we have that... that um, Spirit and body don't mix. But that's not true. We are physical beings in, with spiritual lives, and our spiritual lives have physical manifestations. And these, they're interlinked. You can't separate them, right? And so there seems to be, in the imagination of the New Testament world, demons are never just free-floating. They're always attached to something. And you read about, you know, the spirit of, that hovers over a certain city or a region or whatever like that. So it's always like that there's this idea that the humans, we help, we, we take, we partake, we encourage and help by the institutions we make, we help create demonic or angelic atmospheres. This is really hard to explain. <laughs> this is a long, <laughs> you know. Um, and there's something, there seems to be a funny little feature here that the demons are like, we can't, we have been existing in this man who, by the way, had himself been exiled and sent into a graveyard, was probably the victim of some sort of Roman oppression. There's a whole lot of human institutional failure going on here before you get to a man filled with demons living in a graveyard. And part of the healing of this man is that he's reintegrated back into a wholeness with his community, with his people. So that all the healings and exorcisms that Jesus ever does, they're never just healings. They're always basically political acts, social political acts. He brings people, they've been in a state of being exiled from their homes and their families, and he heals them by bringing them, and bringing them back into their homes and families is part of the healing, right? And, and this is kind of happening here, and he sends the demons out, and the man is able to reintegrate back into his society, and the faceless powers need to be in something. So they go to the pigs instead. Uh, the other fun th- thing about this is that the villagers are now very upset. Jesus has wrecked their livelihoods. He has wrecked their livelihoods. Um, the, 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 when Jesus shows up, socio-economic political forces get changed. <laughs> okay? Um, when, the, when the disciples are preaching in Ephesus, they cause a riot because the people who sell the statues to Diana can't earn a living anymore. When they cast a demon out of a fortune-telling girl, her slave owners are upset because they can't earn a living anymore. The, the presence of Jesus in a place comes with it. He's like a brick thrown into a pond, and it upsets the normal way of doing things. And this is actually another example. Jesus wrecked the livelihoods of a bunch of people, and they were faced with, what do we do now? The Son of God is in our midst. Our lives are no longer the same. Are we offended by this man? Or do we believe in this man? And they asked him to leave, so they were offended by him. 
I've been talking for 36 minutes, friends. Can I, I love these ones, but can I talk about the one that the Lord asked me specifically to talk about and then end? Have a look at Mark, uh, Mark 11. And, and, it, and those of you that ask these questions, do come and talk to me afterwards. I'm, I'm not going to leave you hanging. Or maybe we'll do it tonight. Mark 11. Okay. The verse we're looking at is Mark 11, 22 onwards. Jesus responded to them, Have faith in God. I assure you that whoever says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and doesn't waver but believes what is said will really happen, it will happen. Therefore I say to you, whatever you pray and ask for, believe that you will receive it, and it will be so for you. And whatever you stand up to pray, if you have something against anyone, forgive so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your wrongdoings. In Mark 11, all right, headline. This isn't about pie-in-the-sky utopian. This isn't magic. This isn't Harry Potter. All right, that's the headline. Subheadline. It's about politics and human community. All right, now I need to give you the backstory. Look at Mark 11. Jesus has just come in. This is actually about the temple. Jesus has come in to, he's, he's done his triumphal entry, he's come into Jerusalem, and he's, he, he enters Jerusalem on a wave of adulation, and the crowds are cheering for him, because he, they think he's Braveheart, and he's going to come, and he's going to release the captives from Roman oppression. That's what they think. And Jesus comes in, and what they're expecting is that in the past, people who have been Bravehearts have come into the temple, and they've kicked all the foreign element out. They've kicked the Romans out of the temple. The Romans had a garrison in the temple to, put a, to squash any nationalist uprising because they were occupying Israel. Jesus comes. He's a wave of adulation. There's a crowd of people calling him a king, and Hosanna, you're the King David, and all this stuff. They're acting like he's King Arthur or Braveheart. And they're expecting him to go to the temple and kick all the foreign elements out. What does Jesus do? He goes to the temple, and he says, I want the Gentiles to come in. This house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And you and your purification rituals are stopping people from coming into this place. All right? So Jesus does do a revolutionary act. He does invade the temple. And he invades the temple so that its normal operation rather than affirming the normal operation of the temple, which was to preserve the ethnic purity of Jews who were under the Roman oppression, foreign oppression, he does the opposite, all right? Which, by the way, was why they were so mad at Jesus. <laughs> so he was like this kind of strange traveling revolutionary with a whole crowd of people following him, so the Romans were very nervous. But he didn't act like the kind of freedom fighter that, every, that the Jews wanted. So both sides hated him. Okay? So he's gone in and then he says some stuff about the temple and he curses the fig tree as well before we get to the mountain. And he goes to a fig tree and he says, oh, you don't have any fruit. And then he curses it. What's going on? Well, listen, we are 2,000 years later and we just miss the fact that Mark just assumed we'd all know the fig tree was what the Israelites called themselves. They called themselves a fig tree. The temple was the the heart and soul of the hopes and fears of the chosen people, you know. 
So when he's cursing the fig tree, he's making a statement basically about the temple. He's just cleared the temple. He's cursing the temple because it's not producing the fruits that it's supposed to produce. And by the way, Jesus is exerting his, his creation authority over a fig tree, as it were, because they said, it's not even the season for figs, and you're cursing it? And he's like, yeah, I get to command these things. Right? It's similar to his nature miracle when he calms the sea. He's, he's showing authority over nature. And then the next one is, he, he, he curses the fig tree, and then his disciples, he's just like made a huge statement about the temple, basically saying the temple doesn't stand for what you think it stands for. He then says, you're cursed because you haven't produced the fruits that you, that you were meant to produce. And then he says to his disciples, if you say to this mountain, it will be thrown into the sea. The mountain was just another name for the temple. All right? If we want to go right back to the original context. I lift my eyes up to the mountain. Where does my help come from? This is the psalm they sang as they went up to the mountain. It's still called the Temple Mount today, isn't it? So it always was called the mountain. So this is, this is a chapter of three anti-temple statements, basically. I say anti, yeah, it was anti-temple. He was crucified for this. When Jesus was crucified, the charge that stuck was, he said he's going to destroy this temple. Jesus was heard to be so radically against what most people thought the temple stood for that he was heard to be against it, right? And, and in lots of ways, he sort of was. So what's going on here? So Jesus says to them, have faith in God. I assure you that whoever says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Therefore, I say to you, whatever you pray and ask for, believe that you will receive it and it will be for you. Whatever you stand up to pray, if you have something against anyone, forgive so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your wrongdoings. The temple was the place where you, every time Jesus healed somebody and every time he forgave somebody, he got in trouble, right? Why did he get in trouble? Because people said, you're taking authority that doesn't belong to you. Healing was meant to happen only in the temple. The priests were the ones that were meant to pronounce you clean. Um, the priests were the ones that pronounced that you were forgiven for sins. So whenever Jesus did an action and pronounced, oh, you're no longer, you're pure. I'm going to pronounce you pure now. I'm going to integrate you back into your society. Remember, being ill meant that you were not allowed to be with your family anymore. So when Jesus pronounces somebody pure, he's integrating them back in. Um, every time Jesus did that, he was making a statement about the temple as well. He was saying, that activity you think is supposed to happen in this building, it, it happens with me now. And not only that, he then says to his followers, and I want you to do the same. So he's, and one of the th other things that happened in a temple was that you had to make your sacrifices to be forgiven. And Jesus is constantly saying, in the Gospel of John, for example, us charismatics here, us crazy charismatics, what do you think the first charismatic gift was? You know, Connor? You look in John 20, Jesus comes, and he breathes Holy Spirit on his disciples, and the very next line is, and you will bark like dogs. <laughs> no. Forgive one another. Forgiveness is the first charismatic gift. Whoever you forgive will be forgiven, says Jesus. Something like that is happening here in this story. Jesus says, when you stand, he says to his followers, when you stand, 
forgive each other. It's not that you're congregating now in the place that's going to do the forgiveness for you. He's saying, when you forgive each other, they will be forgiven. He's making a statement about where the power resides. And when he talks about being thrown into the sea, it's, it is, again, it's that figurative language that, like I said, when Jesus spoke and the people were astonished by his teaching because their world was turned upside down, that's what's going on here. He's like, the temple will be turned upside down. This is the, the place that is the hopes and fears and the repository of all of, of all the center of your attention. But what I want you to do is to con- congregate with each other and forgive each other. And when you do that, all the power that's in this place will be as if it fell into the sea. It's a story. It's, a, it's, it's part of a whole line. of. It's not just one verse. It's part of a whole story of what it means for a Jesus movement to happen. That Jesus was marching across the land, pulling people out of what they used to belong to. Their ethnic identities, their class identities, their gender roles. You know, he was children and old people were being given honor and respect. Foreigners, um, enemies, like Jesus is healing the Romans and children and, and servants as well. The, the enemy, the hated enemy, he's healing them. And tax collectors who are the race traitors, he's bringing them into his movement, right? Women have been bleeding for 12 years. Who were, you know, to be a menstruating woman for 12 years was to be more, less pure than a dead animal. And Jesus is like touching her and calling her daughter and bringing her in. So he's creating a new movement around him. Not around all the, what everybody around them says, this is what's important to you. And this temple story is part of that. The mountain story is part of that. He's saying, it's not about the temple anymore. It's not about keeping yourself, your tribe pure from foreign taint. You know, it's not about preserving this sense of moral rightness. It's about being, forgiving one another wherever you are. Go and do likewise. Heal the sick, he tells his disciples. Forgive their sins. If you forgive, they will be forgiven. So I want to encourage you guys. I, I, the, throw the mountain into the sea is not a, it's not a passage of pie-in-the-sky wish fulfillment. It's actually a description of what happened. Nobody worships in the temple anymore. Christians, our lives are not based around the temple anymore. We don't offer sacrifices. Jews don't offer sacrifices. Like, the temple has fallen into the sea. It happened. And we're part of the new movement that recreated earth around a different king. So, yeah, let's stop there. (laughs) I don't... (laughs) So I do believe I do I do believe you and honor you and I want I want you to imagine money. I want you to imagine goodness, but not imagine goodness because you think if I can just generate I'm gonna leave you with this. I don't want to you think that faith means generating your own if I can just screw myself up and I can believe hard enough it will happen. That's not what faith means in the New Testament. Faith doesn't mean trying really hard to believe that circles are square, or that day is night. Faith in the New Testament is always about, are you 
about congregating with Jesus. It's, it feels, to hear the word faith feels more like hearing the word patriotism or allegiance today. So when Jesus says, have faith in me, he's not saying believe that circles are square. He's saying, are you with me? Are you ashamed to be with me or not? Are you going to be part of my movement or not? And it's not asking you to understand everything Jesus says. I already meant we don't understand everything Jesus says. He's not asking us to understand everything he says. That's not what belief means. He's saying, do you believe me? Are you with me? I'm going. Gospel. I've broken the siege. Your chains are loosed. Are you with me? And we get to say, yeah, I'm with him. I don't understand him all the time, but I'm with him. And when we do that, all the other patterns that we're trapped into, and include, very much including our financial anxieties. When Jesus says, don't be worried about money, you know, that is, a, that is an inherited set of traditions that have trapped us, right? And Jesus is like, don't be worried about it. F believe in me. Reform yourself around me, not around the patterns that you've learned being worried about money. So it isn't a teaching of like, and you will have instant money in your pockets. It's, and you won't be worried about money anymore because you are free indeed.